If you have a Bible with you this morning, turn with me to Luke chapter 1 in your Bibles. Luke chapter 1. In the month of December, we've been in a sermon series that we've called Songs of Salvation. We've been looking at and learning from songs in the Bible which celebrate God's plans and his power to save. So last week, we looked at the Song of Mary in Luke 1. The Song of Mary is often called the Magnificat because it begins on that theme of magnifying or praising God. And of course, she wanted to magnify God and praise God because she had received word from an angel and confirmation and encouragement from her cousin Elizabeth that the longed-for Messiah, the long-awaited Christ, the promised one, was finally coming. And it would miraculously, he would miraculously come through her, Mary. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. We don't so much celebrate Christmas trees or love of family or goodwill or presents to each other or frosted cookies. These things are all fine and good, but we celebrate Messiah's birth. We celebrate the coming of the long-expected Jesus. And during this season, as Christians, we oftentimes immerse ourselves in the events and details of the story of the birth of Christ. Because it's not just that it happened that it's important. It's also wonderful how it happened. I've been struck this year with the amount of information and drama that occurs in these gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John before you get to the actual birth. For example, Luke, just one of the four gospel accounts, he spends 86 verses on material before the actual event of the birth of Christ in chapter 2, verse 7. Matthew similarly gives a, a full chapter of background and narrative before getting to the actual birth. If this were a movie, we could say the movie didn't start in, the, uh, in the, the birth center. It didn't start in a hospital. The baby didn't just arrive floating down from the sky. We have many scenes and stories within stories and various people coming and going and responding to what they're being told and what they're seeing. We want to join them in their response. We see responses of fear and awe and joy and wonder and praise we want to join them in their songs so as i said we looked at mary's song last week this week we'll look at zechariah's song also in luke 1 and if you were with us last week then you know this already that in luke 1 we have really the story not just of one son and one birth but two sons and two births that are intertwined and heavily connected there are two families, two angelic announcements, two pregnancies, two moms-to-be, and then two births, two sons, and two songs we'll see this week. So here's Zechariah's song in chapter 1, verse 67. And by the way, notice that like Mary's song of last week, where it doesn't exactly say that she sang it, it says she said it, 
And so here it says Zechariah prophesied, not that he praised or sang, but, but almost certainly these were all songs. It was poetry meant to be celebrated and shared with others. It was poetry meant to catechize, and so you would sing these things. And here's how it goes in Zechariah's song. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness, before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Well, I've never written a song, but I married a gal who's written dozens and dozens, and I know this because I've observed it with my wife, that new songs are often born out of new experiences, fresh feelings, uh, specific circumstances, maybe except for professional musicians and songwriters that are you know, under contract to get out so many songs per month or per year. Otherwise, the vast majority of songwriting in this world, and the real good songwriting, no doubt, springs from new thoughts, new experiences, new feelings, circumstances of grief or, or joy. And so with most of my wife's songs that she's written since we've been married, I, I know the backstory to that song. I know what, what, what got her to get her guitar out and, and to pick up a, a pen and to start writing. Well, Zechariah's song is like that as well. It has a backstory. The backstory to Zechariah's song comes in two phases or, or two movements. There's doubt, which results in salvation, and then there's a declaration which gives way to the song. That's our outline, two main points, and then I'll have a few brief observations about the song itself. So as we begin to think about the doubt which results in silence, look back at chapter 1, verse 11. There's a backstory here. We'll pick up in verse 11. There appeared to him, Zechariah, the priest, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. 
And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. We'll stop there. Doubt, which results in silence. Zechariah was a godly man. That's clear by verse 6, if you look at that. He was a praying man. He was a servant of the Lord. He was a man of faith, but he wasn't a perfect man, and he didn't have perfect faith. No one does. But this was a blunder. The announcement from the angel that his elderly, barren wife would have a son in her old age was clear enough. And his response might, well, it might be reasonable enough if that's all that we had. You see verse 18, how shall I know this? Well, apparently that was some expression of doubt. Apparently it was a different kind of question than the one Mary asked the angel when she was told about her coming son. We saw it last week, verse 34. Mary asked the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And Mary was not rebuked for her question. So apparently her question was along the lines of, how is this going to happen? How is this going to play out? How is it going to go down? And Zechariah's question in verse 18 is more along the lines of, what kind of sign will you give me so that I know that this is true? And apart from the eventual obvious sign of his wife's belly growing in the months ahead, there would be no sign. Well, other than the obvious immediate sign standing right in front of him, an angel, an angel. This, this isn't like Michael Landon. All angels in the Bible, when they show up, are terrifying. It doesn't say so here, but we have every reason to believe that Gabriel is like any other angel, and he's frightening. And of course, that is exactly Zechariah's first response. And notice Gabriel's response to Zechariah's question asking for proof. Verse 19, I am Gabriel. You want proof? I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. That's my home. That's where I work. Right in front of God. And I was sent by God to speak to you. He sent me his word. And by the way, it's good news. You can take God at his word. And that's what Zechariah should have done. 
But this thing of asking questions about God is a bit tricky, isn't it? If you're not a Christian, I actually hope that you are asking questions about God and about the Bible. Probably every Christian, at some point before they became Christians, asked and got some answers to questions. If you're not a Christian, I hope you don't hear from this passage that Christianity doesn't welcome questions. I hope you don't hear from me that this church doesn't welcome questions. But recognize that there are different kinds of questions. Mary's question was reasonable and even an expression of faith. And Zechariah's question apparently sprang from doubt and it was severely rebuked. You think of the different kinds of questions that are posed to Jesus later on in these gospel accounts. Some come to him with genuine questions. It's an expression of faith. It's a pursuit of faith. And Jesus rewards those kinds of questions with truth. But some questions are meant to stump Jesus. Some questions are put to Jesus to protest or, or to accuse I think it was G.K. Chesterton who said something like, the goal of an open mind, like an open mouth, is that it's supposed to land on something. It's not supposed to stay open. An open mind, like questions, can either be in pursuit of truth to land on, or they can be excuses to never land on anything. So be careful with your questions. We can say that this question was out of line and Zechariah knew better than his question suggests. He was a priest. He knew his Bible. He knew what the angel said was pointing back to the Bible, back to the Old Testament, to things promised before, particularly in the book of Malachi. If you look down, verses 14 to 17, there what the angel said was stuff drawn right out of Malachi 3.1 and a little bit more in Malachi chapter 4. That God would one day come to the earth in salvation and in judgment. But before he comes, he will send one to go before. A messenger, a prophet, an Elijah-like prophet who will prepare the way before he comes. This prophet would, in essence, Try to wake up a spiritually sleepy people. And Zechariah was clearly being told that one, the one you know about from Malachi 3.1 and Malachi 4 and also in Isaiah, that's your son. That's what's in your wife's womb. Their son was no ordinary son. And that's why he's given a special name. You might say John isn't that special. In fact, it's known for being really common. Yes, and it was even back then. But John means God is merciful. And even more important, it's a God-given name. And only about a dozen people in the whole Bible have divinely assigned names. God only assigns names like that when he's singling someone out for special purposes. And or it's a time when he's up to something big. And both were true here. God was up to something big and God had big plans for John. So the implications should be clear for Zechariah. The arrival of the promised forerunner 
the, the preparing prophet. That means that all the big promises of old that are still unfulfilled were now going to begin to happen. The promised one was coming. The promised time was just around the corner. And Zechariah can know this. He can take God at his word. And by the way, how much more today can we take God at his word? Zechariah could look back to Malachi. He could look straight ahead at a scary angel representing heaven. Uh, but he couldn't yet look ahead. And we can. We know what came after Zechariah. We know that, the, that what the angel told Zechariah actually happened. We know what the angel told Mary actually happened. We, we know those things promised in the book of Malachi actually came true. We can take God at his word. He's faithful. In fact, that's why the book of Luke was written. It was written that you might have certainty about the things that it records. In fact, it was well-researched and written orderly so that you would have certainty about the things you've heard. Look back to the beginning of Luke. Luke 1, verse 1. Do you remember how in school, if you needed to know what a book was about... Maybe you were supposed to read it, and now there's not enough time, and you've got to do some sort of verbal presentation about the book. You might do this maneuver. You read a little bit in the beginning, you read a little bit at the end, and you kind of know what it's about, right? Anyone else do that? I'm not recommending that your kids do that, but let's do it with the book of Luke and see what happens. We'll look at the beginning and end. So in verse 1 of chapter 1, it says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. That is, other gospel accounts like Mark. And just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke gave us an orderly account. He gave us a well-researched account. He gave us an account of eyewitness sources so that we might have certainty about what's in there. Well, now go to the end of the book, chapter 24 of Luke. What's it say at the end? Not at the very end, but in verse 44, here Jesus is summing things up. He is even summing up what he has taught them and what has happened. So he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Here's the summary of my message. That everything written about me in the law, in prophets, in psalms, the whole Old Testament, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should or, or had to suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So there, now we know what Luke is all about. 
You can have certainty about the things that happened around the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In fact, you should have more than certainty. You should embrace it. You should make it your own. You you should take it as the forgiveness of your sins on account of his death and resurrection. This is what you're hearing. This is what's being proclaimed. This is what we as Christians must proclaim. We need to spread it to the nations. That's the plan. Now, Zechariah didn't have all that information, did he? But you do. You have heard it. You can take God at his word. And as for Zechariah, even where he was in redemptive history, he still had enough data and enough Bible and enough evidence standing right in front of him that he shouldn't have doubted. And so he had silence for nine months to think about that. How do we know that Zechariah's question sprang from doubt and that he should have known better? Well, consider the punishment in verse 20. You will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you didn't believe my words. He was struck deaf and dumb. Can you imagine the enormous trial that would be for any of us? And particularly for him, he was a priest. A large part of his job was speaking and teaching. He had an elderly wife who was now pregnant, and he couldn't hear and couldn't speak. Thankfully, God doesn't deal with all doubters this way. Thankfully, he doesn't deal with every doubting question like this, or there'd be a whole lot of deaf and dumb people on this planet. But dare we almost wish that he did for more people's good, for our own good? It might do us some significant spiritual good to have a lot of noise taken out of our ears. It might do some of us some real good to have that spigot of words we call our mouths just turned off for a while. Certainly that's not the main point of this passage. It's not about practicing solitude and silence certainly Zechariah was unique and certainly he didn't go looking for that deaf and dumb assignment but but it worked in the end as we shall see and so maybe one implication for us today is that some of us could use a little less noise in fewer words so we can sit and think ponder and pray diagnose our doubts that our faith might be strengthened and that in the end our our ears would be opened and attuned to all the right things and our voices would be freed to sing more of God's praises well let's read on to see just that skip to verse 57 In between, as we saw last week, the spotlight turns to Mary and her encounter with the angel, then her visit with Elizabeth. But then at verse 57, the spotlight turns back to Zechariah, Elizabeth, and their new son. Verse 57 says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. 
And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, and we know what he said. So doubt at first resulted in silence, but after nine months and eight days to be precise, declaration gave way to song. There's a declaration which gives way to song here. You can see it it was customary in those days, even more than our own, that a son would take his father's name or at least part of his father's name, or at the very least, a name from someone in the family, like an uncle or a grandfather. And so here they are on the eighth day at the circumcision party. I don't know what else you call it. Uh, The neighbors and relatives are there. They gather to rejoice. Someone pulls out a blank birth certificate and says, so it's Zechariah, right? And Elizabeth following the lead of the angel who already said what his name should be, John. She says, no, it's John. Well, others get involved. No one in the family is named John. So they gesture somehow to Zechariah to get his input on the name. And he asks for his, what would have been a wax pad, probably the iPad of the day. And without any deliberation, without any doubt, he writes, John is his name. In the Greek, John is first. It's more emphatic that way. John is his name. That's his written declaration. It's an expression of his his faith, his restored faith. It's proof of his obedience to God. And it's at that moment that his tongue was loosed and his mouth was opened and he began blessing God and praising God. After nine months of silence, it would have been surprising and alarming to all of a sudden hear him speak. And not just speak, but just launch into praise. Maybe even launch into that song that follows. And so some there wondered what all this meant, verse 63. Some We're freaked out a little bit by this, verse 65. Word spread among the countryside about what had happened. Some decided just to, well, tuck this away for now because this might become significant later on. And some wondered whether these events suggest that this child is unusual and special. Now, you may have wondered by now in this sermon that maybe Ryan forgot that it's December 23rd. You might think, it's Christmas. Christmas is on our mind, and this seems like a 
a study of a guy named John, not Jesus. Well, but John was significant and really important to the story. John was significant, not in and of himself, not totally, but because of the one to whom he was pointing. John was significant because the person he went before and introduced and literally pointed to was ultimately significant. And so John's arrival on the scene means the time has come, capital T time. It means the one was about to come, the capital O, one. And hence, true and final salvation was about to come to the world. So John is important. Turn over to Luke 3. If you want to see something of his importance, let's fast forward approximately 30 years and see what's going on. Luke 3, verse 3, Luke tells us that he, John, went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it's written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. That's what was coming in the ministry of John, so-called the Baptist. He was preparing the way for God. He was getting ready a people. Read on in Luke 3, verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. In other words, he'll judge and he'll save. The chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And Luke says, with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. So you can take Luke's word for it. You can take the, the word of Old Testament prophets that John was really important. And you can take Jesus' word for it. Go to Luke 7 just briefly. In Luke 7, Jesus discusses with some people the ministry of John the Baptist. And he says in verse 26, What did you go out to see when you went out to see John? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. None was greater than John at that point in history because none to that point had had the privilege and the mission and responsibility to, as I said, literally and physically point to the body of Jesus and say, that's it, that's him. The other prophets of the old era could talk about, hey, he's going to be kind of like this. When he comes, it might go like that. They were looking at the Messiah 
with the pieces of information God gave them from this angle and that angle, but they couldn't piece it together just yet. They couldn't see him. Literally, John could see him. And John could say, that is the one who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God. It's impossible to tell the story of Jesus without John. In fact, none of the four gospel accounts attempt to tell the Jesus story without including the related story of John. John is the forgotten saint of Christmas. When you think of Christmas stories or when you imagine what someone might preach on at Christmas time, you might think of the star, the wise men, the shepherd. Shepherds, the angelic announcements, Mary and Joseph, Mary's song. You might think of the the journey to Bethlehem. You might think of the stable or the fact that there was no room for them in the inn. Well, there's no room for John, apparently, on our list of important things related to Christmas. But all four gospel accounts tell the Christmas story of the birth of Jesus alongside and intermingled with the story of John. I say that we all try to find some John the Baptist ornaments to hang on our Christmas tree next year. Maybe put a little camel hair up there or a little fake uh, locust or something like that. You know, give John his due. he's He's not the star of the story. But he is something like the the moon in relation to the sun. John's birth means that God was wrapping up all the promises of old. He was bringing salvation to the world. And he was doing it all through the Lord whom John goes before and prepares the way for. And that's what Zechariah's song teaches us. That's what it celebrates. It celebrates Christmas robustly. By looking back to what came before that moment and looking ahead to all of the saving implications that flow from it. Zechariah moves from doubt through silence to a declaration and then to song. Let me give you three brief observations about Zechariah's song. Notice that it's a song of remembrance and fulfillment as it looks back. Verses 68 to 75, praise God for God having visited and redeemed his people. And notice all the references to things of the Bible in the Old Testament particularly. you got verse 69 about the promises made to the servant David. Verse 70 refers to the predictions that were made to the, the prophets of old. Verse 72 talks about the promises made to our fathers to the Holy Covenant. And verse 73 talks about the oath made to good old father Abraham back in Genesis. Now over the last couple of weeks as we've looked at the songs of David and Hannah and Mary, we've seen these same things pop up. And so we won't get into the nitty-gritty of these things today because we have done that pretty carefully in recent weeks. We've looked to see the biblical connections between promises and covenants of old and fulfillment that happens later on. 
Uh, if you were with us the last couple of weeks, you know what these things mean, who the servant David is and what the Abrahamic covenant is. If you haven't been with us in the last couple of weeks, well, it's a good reason to go online and listen to one of those messages from the last couple of weeks, and it'll help you piece together what's going on here if you don't know. The point, simply put, for today is that with the birth of John and the coming of Jesus, God was wrapping up all his promises and covenants. Everything was coming to a head. It's like the Old Testament is a, it's a series of tributaries, biblical tributaries. They're all running in the same direction, and they come together into one single final river. And John the Baptist is at the fountainhead. He's at the transition between those tributaries and the one. John isn't the one, but he goes before the one. And the one is the horn of salvation, verse 69, that God was raising up. That's Jesus, the horn of salvation that God was raising up. And in him, he was now showing mercy, verse 72. He was saving, verse 69 and 71. Verse 74 says he was delivering his people from their enemies. In fact, two or three times, Zechariah's song refers to enemies. And so you might wonder, what enemies does he envision being saved from? Well, it's possible at his point in redemptive history, knowing what he knows, that he envisions a rescue and a redemption from the tyranny of Rome. Rome had come in and occupied their land. They had their land, but Rome was the boss of their land, and sometimes they were a fierce and cruel boss. And Zechariah may have that geopolitical enemy in mind as he believes that God is going to save and show mercy and deliver his people from their enemies. But if that's what Zechariah has in mind, a geopolitical enemy in Rome, well, God's plan was actually better than Zechariah could have ever imagined. Don't forget how difficult it was for Jesus' closest disciples who heard him teach all the time for them to understand that Jesus didn't come to defeat Rome, but he came to defeat a bigger enemy, a, a greater problem. He came to defeat Satan and sin and death and the curse. He came to die. He died at the hands of the Romans because, well, he wasn't, he wasn't seeking to conquer them as a geopolitical unit, but he was seeking to die in the place of sin upon that cruel cross. Now, there are enemies to be sure. You know, ISIS might be an enemy and other people, you might say, they're really against you, they're doing you harm. Sure, well, that's a lowercase e enemy. But behind all enemies, there are these big enemies, the capital E enemies of Satan and sin and death and the curse. And those kind of enemies we all have within. It's not just out there. It's not just them. It's us. That's why Jesus had to come to defeat those capital E enemies that all of us would be freed and rescued. 
It's a song, we could say, of the prophet and his Lord, based on verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Zechariah's song comes on the eighth day after his miraculous son's birth. And his son is, by, by any comparison, he's, he's, um, he's unparalleled in humanity up to that point. Jesus himself said so. But notice in Zechariah's song that the only explicit reference to his son is, is there in verse 76. You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. And then in the second half of the verse, you will go before the Lord. The more important person or figure is alluded to here. John is great, as we said, because of whom he goes before, because of who he gets to point to. But get this. Now that Christ has come, Now that Christ has followers who have heard what he's done, when they proclaim his name in the world, when they point to him, as it were, verbally, describing him, defending him to the world, they actually have more privilege and responsibility than John did. When we were in Luke 7... Did you notice in verse 28 that I stopped halfway in that verse and didn't read the second half? Verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Here's the other half. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. John the the Baptist was great, unparalleledly great, because of his unique privilege to literally point to Jesus and say, that's the one. But now every Christian can, even with greater detail than John ever knew in this life, point to, describe, and defend Jesus to the world. The one who barely knows the gospel, the least in the kingdom. Greater than John. Wow. The song of prophets and his Lord, dare we say. Notice third about this song. It's a song of salvation and light. Salvation and light. Verses 77 to 79 have these two themes of salvation and light. And really, these are the results of everything that came before. Notice what God has done in Christ. He came to give knowledge of salvation to his people. In the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God. Salvation, forgiveness, mercy. This is salvation. This is what we need. This is what Christmas is all about. This is why Christ came. This is why Luke wrote down what he did. And he wants you to be certain about these things. Jesus came to to be light. The second half of verse 78 The sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to to bring peace. You see the the imagery here. Of course, this this is metaphor language. 
It's as if humanity is sitting in darkness in the middle of the night and Jesus, the Son, dawns on them. He rises upon them. Of course, in one sense, that happened 2,000 years ago when he came. And in another sense, it needs to happen for each person individually and internally as they take him in, as they apprehend this light, as they realize he is the, the son of the universe. He is the promised one. He is salvation. He is the path to peace. You can believe that today. You can go into this Christmas being the first Christmas that you have really known what it's all about. I pray that you would. I pray you would believe. Maybe you'd admit right now that you're far from that. Maybe you can identify with the worst version of Zechariah. You've got questions which arise really out of doubt. They haven't been genuine questions in a long time. They're questions that resemble more accusations against God. Oh, yeah, why did you? Well, what about? How about? Well, we'll take a cue from Zechariah. It might, maybe, it might be useful for you to just take a time out. Maybe just for a time, just put your hand over your mouth and just be silent before the Lord. Be willing to let him speak and try to receive it. Or maybe you'd identify with those people at the house of Zechariah and Elizabeth who were saying, what is all this about? Something's going on, but I don't know what it is. Maybe you think enough's going on, but I'm afraid about what's going on, but I don't know what it is. Maybe you'd say, well, I'm tucking some of this stuff away. And I'm hoping that someday it becomes clear that it's something special, but, well, don't wait too long. Don't wait too long. Or maybe you'd take a page out of the journal of Zechariah and do something like he did that fateful day when he wrote the simple word John down. Oh, I'm not encouraging you to write the word John this afternoon, but maybe... You just sort of have that mental imagery in mind that maybe, maybe today's the day to write it down, to settle this with God. Maybe today's the day to express your faith and make it definitive. If you want to write a date in your Bible, go ahead and do it. But, but maybe deal with God today in a definitive way. Believe in faith. Let your silence be moved to declaration. And your declaration turned into songs of praise because you know what he's done and what he's done for you. Christian, if you've, as it were, you've written it down, you've settled this with God, well, join Zechariah, join Mary, join the angels, join the church in praise. Sing and keep singing. If you've been saved, Sing. If you've been in a season of silence, well, may God open your mouth and loosen your tongue today that you might be freed to sing and to sing happily about who he is and what he's done and even what he will do. Well, let's pray and then we'll sing some more.
Oh, Lord, you have put a song in our mouth, said the psalmist, and may it be so for us. When we sing this Christmas season, may it not be simply to follow along with the crowd. May it simply not be because, well, we're comfortable with these familiar songs. May it be because we believe these things to be true and true for us. May it be that we've experienced them. May it be that some here this morning come to experience this grace and glory for the first time. Lord, we pray it would be so. We pray they would join us in being saved and singing about it. We pray you'd move some this morning, Lord, from a season of silence into a season of inexpressible praise and song. May it be so now as we sing of Jesus in all that he's done for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.